Um, so hopefully everyone has a pen and uh, a sheet that I've uh, created a bit of a questionnaire. So we're going to stop as we go through and um, I may ask you to just read the question and answer it. But it will hopefully make, it makes sense just looking at it now, but it will make more sense hopefully as we go through the text today. Um, if you do need a pen, it's uh, Joe's fault. Um, as he was giving them out. So um, I'm not being sexist. The title I decided for today, took me a long time to come to it, is Does God Say I Can Use a Man Like That? Pointing at us. And I don't mean just men, I mean women. God can use men, God can use women. Um, so I believe that, and I know our church believes that. Um, so, yes, so when it comes to studying God's word, and when it comes to teaching, I've heard John say, I've heard other teachers say it, that sometimes just before you talk, you think to yourself, okay, what do I really have to bring? Everyone's, you know, you've probably heard the passage I'm reading today before, you've probably heard the kind of things I'm going to say today before, there's not going to be, especially when you're talking to Christians, people who have been going to church for a few years, they've probably already heard it before. But we have to remember every single time that either you guys come to church and you come to a church service or when you're at home and you're reading the Bible uh, on your own, we've got to remember um, these verses, or at least these verses encourage me when I'm um, preparing a message or when I'm reading the Bible. First one is that if the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4, verse 12. So we know that any word, even if we think, I've heard this millions of times, we know that God can use that word to pierce the division of soul and spirit. Now that doesn't sound nice. If that actually happened, I think it would hurt a little bit if if it pierced between my soul and my spirit. And so I know I've heard a good message, or I know that God God is doing something when it it, it tinges just a little bit. So we want to be able to... um, feel something today. We want to be expecting something when we come to the Word of God. If we're not, it's uh, not doing its purpose and probably we're not open to what it has to say to our lives. Then there's a very challenging some people verse, and to me, I shouldn't just say to other some people, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5 verse 48. Now some people see this as a horrible verse because it makes them feel really guilty, like they're never going to be perfect, never going to be good enough. But I see this as an opportunity um, for all of us that we get to uh, have a chance um, to be perfect, that God doesn't just say, wallow in your sin, continue um, in, in what Adam did. He says, no, you can uh, strive to be perfect, and we know that through his spirit um, all things are possible, and, we, and obviously when we see him in heaven we will be perfect. But seeing this verse is an opportunity for us today to say, how can we improve, how can we be more perfect, how can we be more pleasing to God? Um, there are always ways, and therefore we connect those two verses together and we realise, okay, I want to uh, I want to read the word of God, I want to hear the word of God, what does the God want to say to me, how does he want me to be more perfect, how does he want me to uh, be more pleasing to him, uh, he is worthy to be pleased and how can I please him and be like him. Um, and then the last verse, which is more of a, as we're approaching today's text, we kind of need to have this, hold this in mind uh, as we go through it, because... Um, we're seeing Paul and we're looking more at Paul and his life in Acts and, uh, and all the things he went through and the way he behaved and things that happened to him. And we think to ourselves, well, that might be all very well and good for him. But he said in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should imitate uh, him as he imitates Christ. And so when we look at Paul's life um, and the practical way that he lived in Acts, we can think to ourselves, okay, the way he is behaving, the way he is living his life. 
what, what does that mean uh, for me, and uh, and how does that reflect Christ's and the way Christ and the way that He lived? So um, that's why I wanted to say that there is an opportunity for you today to um, become more perfect. That's not an arrogant thing for us to say that we want to be more perfect, and um, God will improve us through His Spirit and through His Word. Don't need to go into that yet. Um, okay, so it's turn to Acts. We're turning to Acts, uh, the end of chapter 22, um, the last verse of Acts 22, and uh, we're going to read to the end. Of, we're not going to read right now, but we're going to go to the end of 23 today. Um, just to say, in prep for this, I listened to a message um, on a guy who did half of this text, and it took him 40 minutes. So um, we'll see how long it takes me to do a ch- uh, I have 30 minutes. Okay, how, yeah, anyway, um, I'll get on with it then. So, um, is everyone there? Is everyone there? Should we just pray before we start? Um, Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that your word is living and active, that you uh, have left us um, not alone, but your spirit is with us and you've uh, given us your words so that we can grow in you and become more like you, Lord God. Uh, press on our hearts today uh, what you want to do in our lives and, uh, and how you want to change us and grow us to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, I'm just going to read Acts. No, I'm not going to read Acts. Um, I am, but I'm going to read Acts 20, verse 22 to 23 to give a little bit of context. As um, Paul is now in Jerusalem and he's been arrested, but before he even got there, he knew this. He knew, uh, he said, Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Now, he went with that kind of heart. He knew what was coming. So let's not pretend that Paul's been taken by surprise or that he wanted an easy life and he thought he was going back to Jerusalem to visit uh, home and have a holiday. He knew when he was going what he was in for. And, um, and I think sometimes we avoid bad situations, don't we? We often run away from them. We think, oh, if I go there, that's going to be really, really difficult for me. But actually, Paul knew what he was doing right back, well, three chapters ago, um, that he would suffer where he was going. And he was willing to accept that, knowing that Christ would be glorified uh, through that. And so we sometimes need to say, okay, yes, this might be not good for me personally, but actually will Christ be glorified by a decision, particularly, potentially. He then got another guy to back it up in Acts 21. A prophet called Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took this Luke talking, um, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. Paul owned the belt, unlucky for him, and deliver, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Paul was told very loud and clear what would happen to him. So that's the context coming in. He gets to Jerusalem and he, uh, he is, he goes there, I think he's there, he's there for a festival, I believe, um, and he, gets towards the end of the festival and he thinks he might have got through the festival without any pain. And well, I think it was the last day. Um, the, uh, a riot begins because of him, uh, because of the fact that he's been um, uh, telling people about Christianity and telling people about Jesus. And in their eyes, weakening the, uh, the law of Moses and, and uh, living by the law. And there's a riot. And so the, this guy called the... Um, he's called the commander in the New King James. Um, he's called the tribune in the ESV. His name was Claudius Lysias. He, uh, he came down from what we call the barracks, which were just above the temple. And he came down because he heard the riot starting. And he arrested, uh, he arrested Paul. 
um, basically just to find out why the Jews were so angry with him. And, uh, and so a little, a, a little bit, time passes, uh, not time passes, then there's last week's chapter, which if you were here, you heard it, you can go back and listen to it, I think. Um, and then he, they find out he's a Roman um, Jews, sorry, they find out that Paul is a Roman citizen, so it gives him more rights, um, which kind of feeds into a little bit of the way he's treated uh, this week. And so we get to today, this week's text. Um, hopefully that was good context. So he's, he's arrested, he's under guard, and, um, and the guy who's looking after him, the guy who arrested him, called the commander in the New King James, which was what I'm reading from, um, is he's basically wants to find out. So he brings them, brings, he brings Paul before the Sanhedrin or the council, whatever you want to call them, um, a group of, a, a kind of an overview of the Jewish people of the day, the, the high people in, uh, in the Jewish, called the Jewish court. Um, so we're going to read from verse 30 to verse 22, chapter 22, verse 30 to 23, verse 10. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain, that's the tribune, wanted to, or the commander, wanted to know for certain why Paul was accused by the Jews. He released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead I am being judged. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. And so we read, uh, yeah, we read this, we read that he, that Paul comes before this council, and he's thinking, great, maybe Paul isn't thinking this, but Paul, I like to think that Paul is thinking, great, an opportunity to preach to this council, but the thing he says, it's a bit more of a testimony, really, he says, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Notice he doesn't say before man until this day, he says before God. So that's one of the things I want to focus on uh, today is, are we living in all good conscience before God? Can we say that um, about ourselves? But look, so this kind of introduces Paul. This says, if you know, we obviously know stuff about Paul already, but in this text anyway, introduces Paul, and he's saying that he lives a good conscience before God until this day. He's saying he's consistent, and then, well, that's a big jump actually, let's say he doesn't say that. He says that he lives in all good conscience. Um, and then we'll... We see that then Ananias uh, tells someone to punch him. And then 
Paul then basically comments and says, you know, you're being a hypocrite. He says, you whitewashed the wall. Whitewash is, is another way of saying, you know, you look good on the inside, but you're actually dirty on the inside. So he's basically saying that to, he doesn't know it's the high priest, but he's saying it to the high priest. And he's, uh, he's referring to the law to say that you are being a, a hypocrite and uh, you're not being a just judge. And then they come back and they say, do you revile God's high priest? And he says, I did not know. Sorry. Again, he's trying to be consistent uh, with the law. He's trying to be consistent um, with what he believes. He, he knows that he shouldn't criticize his ruler. So that's not what he was trying to do. He was literally stating the truth. Um, but they were being, so you see, just in those first five verses of chapter 23, he's being consistent. He's um, sticking by the law himself. And he says he has good conscience before God. And in these verses, we already see that Ananias um, is, is hypocritical and not... Um, living according to what he says he believes, and we see that, um, and yeah, and so, and they're being hypocritical. Um, so then we go on to verse six, and Paul uses this fact that he realizes he's in a, uh, in a building with people who say that they're one, they say that they're united, they're the Jewish court, they say that they are, they can judge, but they're undecided about things themselves, they don't know these absolute truths, they're not they're unsure about what's true. And so he points that out. He appeals to, um, to half the core, basically, and uh, he causes a dissension. I'm just going to, I can't go into detail about it, I don't have the time, but uh, I'm just going to say he causes a dissension. So my big point is here that who is being consistent? Paul is being consistent. He lives in good conscience before God. Uh, that's how he lives his life. He makes sure that he is right before God. He repents, he apologizes to them when he realizes he's made a mistake. And yet they uh, are hypocritical and then they're uh, split by their own uh, confusion and they argue with each other uh, in, a, in a court. They're, they're unsure of themselves. They have no, which, which ruins their authority really. You don't want a court that's disagreeing with itself about what, uh, what truth really is and what is true and what isn't. And so I, I think about, I think about um, why, why is Paul being the consistent one? You, surely you'd imagine the court, you know, the people who are high up in society, you think they would be the consistent ones. But we see, no, Paul is the consistent one. And I say that that is because of Paul's relationship with God. I say that Paul is consistent with, uh, uh, consistent with the way that he behaves because, God, uh, because Paul has a relationship with God. Paul uh, knows God. Paul lives with God. And uh, because of the fact that he's connected with God, we can... Um, to me, that's why he's consistent. And you think about Sanhedrin's position towards God, they're not consistent. They don't understand. Um, they are being inconsistent because that their relationship with God hasn't been fixed through, uh, through Jesus. So I think about the fact that Paul has this relationship with God, has this relationship with Jesus, and I think about uh, the fact that Jesus was consistent in his behavior, and Jesus was consistent with the way that he was. Uh, what verses we have here, Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? He pointed to his, the fact that he hadn't actually done anything wrong. He was um, above reproach. He was consistent with what he believed and what he, um, the way he lived his life. There wasn't a disagreement between them. They agreed uh, with, with each other. He said again in John 5, verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, of, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So because he knew God and had that relationship with God the Father, um, he was therefore um, living out that relationship with God. And I think sometimes we think that we should be living out our knowledge of Scripture, but actually we should be living out our relationship with, 
with God, um, who we can know through the Bible, sure, but it's that relationship with God that we're living out. And um, most importantly, I think the biggest verse that says that Jesus was consistent is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I was really thinking about how powerful this verse is, the fact that um, if God was consistently changing, then we'd be consistently changing. But the fact is we can be consistent and we should be consistent in our walk with God and in our, um, in our actions and in our, uh, in our beliefs and what we stand by because the person that we have a relationship with, the person that we live by, is consistent. He is unchanging. Um, and so, next, let's have a look, what am I doing? Um, so, again, why was Paul so consistent with God? Um, I, like, I, I was really thinking about this verse quite a lot, about why Paul was consistent, um, why Paul uh, could be consistent. And it was because I think he really understood what Jesus said here. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we've got to remember that we can't do anything unless we abide with Jesus. And Paul knew this. Paul knew that he needed to. He, he said some, somewhere, I'm not exactly sure where, maybe 1 Corinthians, um, that he thanks God that he prays in tongues more than any of you. <laughs> and whilst it sounds quite arrogant, his main point was uh, he, he knew the value of spending time with God. He knew the time of abiding in Jesus. And so we see here in his character that his consistency comes out of this relationship with Jesus. Um, so, and then here, this is a bit of a, a kick to make sure that we take this seriously. So, because you were lukewarm, this is Jesus talking to a church in Revelation, um, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. We can't be lukewarm. We can't be one of, uh, unsure between one or the other. We need to be consistently um, in our relationship with God. We need to know um, Jesus and know his will in our lives. So this, I think, is a good time for you to uh, look at the first question on the sheets that I gave you. It says, in what areas of my life am I inconsistent? Now you have a minute. Maybe write down the, probably the first thing that comes to your mind is probably going to be the correct thing. You, you want to think to yourself, what, in what areas of my life am I inconsistent? This is, I'm, I'm not going to see these. These are for you. I want you to take them home, and I want you to pray about them this week. I want you to put it on your fridge if you feel that you can do that, and just ask yourself, in what areas of my life am I inconsistent? In what areas of your life do you... Are you consistent? Do your beliefs match your actions? That's what I think want you to think about. Do my beliefs match my actions? Don't, I don't answer the next question for now. Just, just answer that question. Um... You can always come back to this at the end. I'll keep, I'll keep talking because I am on a time limit. Um, I used to work at Fat Face only for a few months. And I remember I just read a book about um, one of the books that the uh, internship requires that I read. And it was about submission to um, authority. A bit kind of what um, Paul's talking about here. Um, having to be, uh, not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Um, and I was at work and one of, uh, one of the women I worked for, um, she said to me, I was talking to my co-worker um, about what we should do next, or it was about passing on responsibilities. And maybe I talked for a minute instead of 30 seconds or something, but I thought it was unreasonable that uh, my, my boss, or the, the leader, the uh, person on duty, um, said to me, uh, called me over and said, you, I've been watching you, you've been talking, uh, you need to not talk. And immediately I had all this kind of pride come into my head about... Um, 
you don't know, I mean, I've got a degree and, uh, and I've been in Canada for a year serving. And all these, all these really negative thoughts came out. And I wasn't honoring her as a leader when I started thinking all these different things. And yes, I didn't say anything to her. I wasn't rude to her. But I'm not just talking about actions when we talk about consistency. I'm talking about the heart. We believe things. But actually, what, are our thoughts consistent with what we believe? I believe that I should be under the authority of the people that God puts over me. I believe that. But does that mean that I... Um, I can just have negative thoughts and be really rude about them in my head. No, I, my beliefs should be consistent with my thought life and with my actions. Um, so that was just, for me, that was the story that came to my head that I needed to uh, pray about that and I needed to deal with that. Um, the next question is, uh, and you might notice that this question is kind of repeated in different ways throughout it, because I kind of think it's all the same answer as well. Um, what should I do to grow in Jesus Christ and become more Christ-like, more consistent? So, um, if you want to write something down quick now, you can. Or whilst I'm talking, you can. But I'm going to move on. But we want to be asking ourselves what we should do to grow in Christ and become more Christ-like. We should always be praying this. But particularly to be more consistent. How do I make my beliefs match up with the way that I live? Um, so, yep, yeah, read that. And... So we move on to uh, verse 10, I believe. Um, I did read it out before, it's, and it said, Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled by pieces to, by them, uh, to pieces by them, commanded the soldier to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Now I just found it quite interesting that um, God made sure Paul was protected by an unbeliever a non-believer in Christ, as far as we know. Um, there's no insinuation that he is a believer. And uh, and I just find it interesting that sometimes we kind of think that God only uses um, Christians to achieve things. And I just wanted to stop and pause and be like, okay, it's really interesting that if we believe that God is sovereign, that God actually used um, this commander to save Paul, save Paul's life. And we're going to see going on that he actually continues to do this. And, and we're going to see how... God's protection can work through human means. Go to verse 11, and after this, you know, this thing, Paul doesn't know what's going on, remember? Um, Paul, Paul, you know, he doesn't know whether he's going to die in, in Jerusalem. He doesn't, he doesn't know at this point. He thinks, you know, tomorrow I could be crucified. He really doesn't have any idea. And I was thinking whilst we were singing that song, um, The Lord is My Shepherd, how we, we sing it, and I think we sometimes think that the harmony, I really like the harmonies in the chorus, and I think to myself, that's really, that's really nice how men and girls' voices, they really complement each other. And I was thinking about um, the idea of Paul singing this, say this night, he, after, after the, the dissension he'd, he'd caused, and how that kind of song, and obviously it comes from um, the famous psalm, that kind of song would have been a hope and a light for him in prison. It would have been something that he would have been holding on to. And we, don't, we rarely have to hold on to scriptures. We maybe go through trials and we hold on. But you've got to think of those people who have been in prison and, and, and Paul consistently through, consistently, um, continually throughout Acts going through these horrible things and having to hold on to God's goodness and God's mercy and God's guiding and leading him. Um, and so we see in verse 11, we see, um, you know, God could have told him what we're about to read a few years ago, giving him that kind of peace. But God waited till now to say, but the following night the Lord stood by him and said, 
the Lord God said. Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Now, I like how he says, you know, so you have testified for me in Jerusalem. Now, he has testified to him, but he's also got beaten a bit, and he's been under a huge amount of stress and burden. And so to kind of say, so you know the burden you've had in Jerusalem, you're going to have that in Rome too. Be of good cheer. Uh, okay, you know, if I was Paul, I'd probably be like, when am I going to go and visit my family and and uh, have a break and... Um, you know, yeah, I've given up so much, God, can I have a break now, I'd be thinking. Um, so, but we see that this to Paul, at least, God says to Paul, be of good cheer. And um, and I think God knew that Paul would be of good cheer when he heard this. You've got to remember the attitude of the apostles and how we can realise how much we lack when we compare ourselves to the attitude of the apostles in the early church. We think about in Acts 5, verse 41, after a huge, huge beating, I think it was... I can't actually remember. I think it was like 50 stripes or something. 39 stripes. John? Yeah, sure. I'm pretty sure there was like 40 was illegal, but 39 was legal or something. So that's 39 whips on the back. And all like I think all the apostles had received this. Maybe it was just Peter and John or something. And they said, Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they've been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's the name of Jesus. They were... They were rejoicing because they've been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. For the name of Jesus. And so whilst Paul might have been crying that night, I don't know. I believe that some part of him, maybe all of him, I have no idea whether he was cheering and singing hymns, I don't know. But I believe that he understood what it meant to be of good cheer, knowing that he was um, suffering dishonour for the name of Christ. But then we also go on to, to read what he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13 and 14. It says, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, he said, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So he's kind of saying that Paul just couldn't help but preach. He couldn't help but speak about the name of Jesus. And so uh, he probably was rejoicing about that as like the opportunity to share with Rome. And knowing that Rome essentially means the Roman Empire and Caesar, um, who we know he eventually did uh, preach to, as far as church tradition tells us. I don't think the end of Acts says he does that, but I think church tradition does. And, um, and so we know that going to Rome is a huge, huge thing. And so it, he would have been rejoicing. And that's just amazing, because I... I really wouldn't be. And I think we just have to think about what Paul gave up. Um, what I find really interesting is we're about to read um, in like 10 verses time about his nephew and sister in in Jerusalem. There'd be no mention of his family so far. Back at those verses I said before, uh, he, he didn't say, where am I? Uh, he didn't say here, you know, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem to visit my family. Um, you know, my sister and my nephew are there. I'm, I'm extremely looking forward to it. Um, I, but I may, he said, but I may also face imprisonment and afflictions. He didn't even mention his family. You can tell what's on his heart, what was on Paul's heart the whole time. He was, it was God's work that was on his heart. It's God's uh, calling on his life that's on his heart. Um, I'm reminded of the verse, um, kind of the hard verse that Jesus uh, said in one of the Gospels. He, he talked about um, letting, you know, letting the bury bury their dead when a son, want, I think, a son wants to bury his father, and uh, and that's so challenging because we have these attachments, those thing, these things that we hold really close to ourselves, but we 
Uh, and I'm reminded of, of, of John, actually, when, you know, you being out in England and, and your father passing away and you didn't manage to go home in time to, um, to see him before he passed away and how actually that's part of what God's called for your life coming here. It's part of the sacrifice that he's, um, called for you. And in the same way, Paul, uh, was called to this kind of life where he didn't get to, uh, focus on the things that just pleased him, but his, Focus was always on the will of God to the point of death, not just chains and uh, beatings. And so he's had this promise, though he's got this promise, you'll survive. You may go through more beatings, which he does, and shipwrecks and things like that, but you will survive and you will get to Rome. So there's a promise there. And uh, and we always remember these promises, um, sometimes they're specific to Paul, but sometimes they're for us. You know, promises like we are more than conquerors um, is one that I love and I hold on to. And so we've got to be reminded of these promises we always want to know that these, um, we want to hold on to these promises, we want to make sure that they're um, imprinted on our brains. And so when you read the Bible, um, and if you're just looking for one thing to pick out and, and meditate on, then find a promise, find something that um, applies to you that you can think, okay, God, that's how you see me, or that's what you're going to do with my life. Um, or, you know, his mercies are new every morning, that's a promise. And so we can hold on to these things. But, but Paul's been given the promise of you will survive, as the song goes, and um, you will survive and you will make it to Rome. And then we read, so basically God's made a promise, God said this is going to happen, and guess what, man decides to do the opposite, not do the opposite, man decides to try and counter it, or the devil does anyway. Um, so we read verses 11 to 20, no, 12 to 20, no, 12 to 22. Um, is everyone with me? And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when... I'll stop there, actually. Stop at verse 15. I realise I've been talking about um, kind of going before what we just read, because I should have stopped and looked at the piece of paper that I have given you. Um, It says, the third question down is, am I living in God's will? Do I consult God in my daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, long-term decisions? Now, Paul was at the point, as I mentioned, that he could receive a promise saying, you're going to go to Rome, and he could just accept that. That was God's decision. But I don't think he was, you know, playing Xbox when God decided to speak to him. I think he was praying... Um, and asking constantly, God, what's your will for my life? The fact that he expected bad things to happen when uh, he was going to Jerusalem, and even though he knew God's will for his life, as we see in the bottom uh, through the prophet Agabus, he continued to um, go along with it, even though it might not be good for him. And so I, we, it's always good for us to say, okay, what's God, where's God taking us? What does God want for us? God has promises for us. Um, always got to remember... Um, Ephesians 2.10, that's what I haven't read out, isn't it? Um, not that one. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul wrote this as well. Paul knew this in his own life, that God had prepared works beforehand, potentially this, he was thinking of, maybe, um, that we should walk in them. 
And so we know that God has plans for our life. How often do we ask what those plans are? Are we constantly saying, God, what are your plans for my life? And um, when we, you know, the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. Um, That should be our prayer. Your will be done in our life. Um, That's the prayer that I want you to encourage you guys in. Um, But, you know, ask the question. It's just a yes or no question. Am I living in God's will? Do I consult God in my daily, weekly, monthly, yearly, long-term decisions? It's not a hard question. Um, It's a hard reality to face if the answer is no. But it's not a hard question. Um, So just write down yes or no there. And you can go home and get upset about it if you want. Um, And so... I'm going to skip over the next question again, but you'll get the idea that each question is the first and third and fifth question are, are kind of asking questions about what you think, how you're doing. And then the second, fourth and sixth question are um, what should you do to make this change? And so I want you to go home and I want you to to, to ask God uh, how this is going to change. Or, or even if the answer to how this should change is I need to pray more, then write that down. Or for me... Uh, I think that I need to uh, get down on my knees and worship because at that point I get to a point where I feel uh, humble and I don't think, personally, I don't know this is how I work, that I feel like I don't feel, it's like I take the puff out of myself. I like I completely reduce myself and I, I find that symbolically, I don't know, um, good for me. And um, and I think that just shows how I should be before God and, and I do that symbolically. And I should do that more because I think that's going to make me more uh, that can increase my relationship with God which in, and help me abide with God, which is then going to lead me to being more Christ-like um, in my life. So, um, we go on. We just read um, verses 12 to 15, and we see that they're trying to, these Jews, these 40 Jews, are trying to counteract God's promise. They don't realise they're doing it, obviously. They haven't heard what God said to Paul. But they want to destroy Paul. And so we, we think to ourselves, okay, what's going to happen here? How is God going to get Paul out of this one? You know, is he going to teleport him like he did to Philip in Acts chapter 8? Is that 8? I thought it was, is that 8? I thought it was 6. Anyway. There you go. Sarah's been a Christian longer than me. Um, <coughs> is he going to teleport him? That would be a really cool one, right? I reckon Paul's going to be teleported to Rome. Right, that, that, that. No, he doesn't, doesn't do that actually. That's interesting. Uh, that's a shame. Oh, well, maybe, maybe he's going to get a huge vision of, uh, like Elisha was given, of the hev- heavenly angels' armies, you know. Um, El- El- Elisha was really scared, and Elijah said, God, let Elisha see, um, the, you know, what I see. And Elisha saw all of heavenly armies, all, all of the angels. And I'm sure there were lots of angels around Paul. I'm sure the angels could have just opened the door and let him go. But no, it's interesting that actually God uses human means to get um, Paul out, not out even, to Rome. Um, Paul actually never is free again after this point that we know of in scripture. But he gets Paul to Rome um, through his captives. And so we go on to verse 16 uh, to verses 22. And we see these what you could call coincidences or man-made things, but we'll, we'll, we'll see how it works. Um, it says here, so when Paul's sister's son, otherwise known as a nephew, heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man, man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, 
Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than forty of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. Now I was struck. No, I wasn't paying. Um, <coughs> I like it when God does, uh, does his will through um, non-believers' decisions, through randomers' decisions. We sometimes think that we do believe in free will. I, I, I believe that we get to make choices. And, uh, but I think that God can use those choices. And I don't really see a contradiction. I think he can even decide those choices. But they're just a choice. And I, I, I don't particularly see a, a contradiction there. I, I'm reminded um, of the story of Esther. And there's a particular uh, part where the, uh, the king is struggling to get to sleep. And he asks for a bedtime story. And uh, he asks his servant to come in and, and bring something from the history books. And the book, the, the, out of probably hundreds of books that the servant could pick, pick was the story of, uh, I've forgotten his name now, um, Mordecai, uh, Mordecai saving the king's life. And, and, and the king said, oh, what was the reward that Mordecai got? And that led to the rest of the book of Esther, which was essentially saving the whole people of the Jews, just because the one choice that the servant made, the one book, or just the very fact that the king couldn't get to sleep one night. You know, we think tiny little things, but actually that book, um, we see God working all the way through it behind the scenes. And I think it's very interesting to see God working behind the scenes here. The fact that Paul is given so much favour, the fact that the nephew even overheard, I don't know how the nephew overheard um, this plot to kill Paul, but he did. And he managed to get the message to Paul. Paul had the privileges of visitors. And, uh, and the commander was willing to hear Paul's nephew. And as we're going to see now, Paul's uh, nephew responded. So we see here, he called for two centurions, saying, this is verse 23, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, and provide mounts to set Paul on, and bring him safely to Felix the governor. That sounds pretty VIP, that travelling to me. Um, I, I found this picture, which reminded me of it. Um, you've got to think, you've got to think, 470 men were sent with Paul to, to make him go about 70 miles. Uh, that's about half the army, I think, I read, uh, in Jerusalem was sent with Paul to keep him alive. This is actually the, uh, the guard of the Indian prime minister, but that's not important. Um, there was 470 of these men, and I just think that's incredible. I think that, you know, I can just imagine Paul sitting up on that horse, not a car, BMW, but a horse, uh, you know, feeling like, whoa, why am I being so protected? But that's God's favour and God uh, literally transporting him, not through teleportation or anything cool like that, but just on the back of a horse in a very good, uh, good, normal way, through normal means. We sometimes expect the supernatural and sometimes we'll get the supernatural, but sometimes we'll get uh, God working through normal means. Um, he, uh, he wrote a letter, this is verse 25, this is... Uh, the commander wrote a letter in the following manner. 
Claudius Lysias, that's the commander's name, to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. I like to note here that um, the commander couldn't find any guilt in him. It kind of reminds me of um, the fact that Pilate couldn't find any guilt in, in Jesus. And Pilate washed his hands of the guilt um, for his death. Um, I, I'm reminded that it was the Jews that killed Jesus in the end. It wasn't really, maybe through the Gentiles, but it wasn't really the Romans. It was the Jews who shouted, crucify him. Um, the Jews could have released him, but they didn't. I'm reminded that actually in the town that um, that Jesus went back to, he uh, he wasn't he wasn't seen favourably. He said that a prophet isn't welcome in his hometown, and it's very interesting that Paul is again uh, being torn down by Jews. And the early church um, was mainly wasn't really being fought against and persecuted by the Romans, although they were a little bit, especially as time went on. It was mainly by the Jews. And I, I'm just briefly, maybe it's a bit of a side point, I'm reminded that I'm reminded that um, often that's how we are. I think it's our friends and our family that kind of give us the most grief uh, for our faith sometimes. And um, sometimes we think to ourselves that um, you'd think it'd be the stranger on the street that you try and give a track to, but actually they can be quite pleasant. <laughs> um, I've had some good conversations with people, probably some of the best gospel-centered conversations have been with um, with strangers, people I just meet. But actually, it's the unbelievers in your in your your friendship group and your family who could be the ones that kind of give you the most pressure. And I think just knowing that Paul went through that from his own people, from the people he used to he was trained, I believe, in Jerusalem. Not 100% sure about that, but. Uh, and Jesus lived in there the whole, whole of his life, but those are the people that actually fought against him. And so I think it's just uh, it's comforting almost to know that people in the past went through the same thing, I think, that we go through um, in that. So we're coming into the end, verse 34 and 35. We see, uh, it says, actually, I'll read verse 31 to 35, sorry. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatras. That's about halfway to Caesarea. Uh, the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him still like 200 people and returned to the barracks and when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letters to the governor they also presented Paul to him and when the governor had read it he asked what province he was from and when he understood that he was from Cilicia he said I will hear you when your accusers also have come and he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium which is another word for palace um we just we just see that Cilicia is is the district or province that uh, Paul was from. That was basically meant that it was under Governor Felix's jurisdiction. It was his responsibility to hear uh, issues from there. So Felix is like, fair enough, this guy um, should, can stay here. He's part of my uh, my job description. Um, and so we see Paul for the first time um, essentially being kept um, prisoner by a governor, and uh, a governor is pretty high up. He had a, you know, a whole province to look after. And we see that this is one step to him being taken towards, um, towards Rome, uh, eventually being able to uh, preach to Caesar. And we see him basically working up, really, 
um, working up the food chain in a sense, being able to, he's, he's preached in the synagogues and now God's using him to preach in bigger and bigger places. He's increasing his sphere of influence and uh, I believe he's, he's increasing um, Paul's uh, sphere of influence because Paul is faithful with the sphere of influence he's been given. Um, going back to, I think, what is the, uh, the key, one of the key verses in today's uh, text, it was verse 11. And I note that it says, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So do you see that because he was faithful in testifying for God in Jerusalem, he was therefore given the responsibility um, of witnessing to God in Rome. Uh, now, if he'd messed up or hadn't been faithful in Jerusalem, I don't think God would have wanted him, essentially, to go to Rome. He might have even found someone else. So I'm reminded of that verse. I don't know if I ever read it. No, I didn't. Oh, by the way, that's the map. That's the route from Jerusalem to Caesarea. It takes 23 hours to walk. So uh, that would have been a long night for them, travelling. Um, but did I ever write the verse... There we go, yeah. Matthew 25, verse 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Um, and I'm reminded of that verse because I think Paul here has been faithful with what God's given him. God's given him life, knowledge, all these amazing things of being a Christian. And what's he done with it? He's poured out his life for um, Jesus and for the gospel. Um, and therefore God's given him more um, to uh, giving him more opportunities to give the gospel, and eventually we'll be able to take the gospel to Rome. Um, we, I, I just want to end by looking at uh, the last question or the last two questions that I gave you on your sheet. Am I growing in righteousness? Do people struggle to say something negative about my character? That's kind of that. I ask that question mainly because um, of the innocence that was pointed out by the commander to uh, to Paul. No, not to Paul, to the uh, governor, Felix, about Paul. Paul, uh, there, there was no actual thing said about him. How did it word it? It said, um, but nothing, but had nothing against, yeah, that Paul had nothing charged against him, deserving of death or chains. So nothing could really bad be said about, about Paul. Can people say the same thing about you? People who know you're a Christian, can they still say, oh, he's a Christian, but... Or do they say he's a Christian and he, he, he's sincere, he's consistent, he, um, they might not know Christ, but can they see Christ in you? Or do they recognise, um, will there be Christ-like attributes in you? Can you actually, I've heard the phrase, um, you might have heard the saying that uh, sometimes we're the only Jesus that anyone ever sees. Um, so before you can even open your mouth, just the way that you live your life um, can, be can be an imitation of Christ and show people what being a Christian and knowing God is about. And so I think about Paul, I think about the fact that he was consistent, I think about the fact that he was in the will of God, and I think about the fact that he uh, he obviously grew in righteousness, so we can see the change in his life through the book of Acts, and, uh, and the fact that no one could really say anything bad about him by this point. And uh, I think um, of what Paul said, sorry, God said to Paul, as I just said in verse 11, that you will testify to me in Rome. So essentially, I see God pointing at Paul and saying, I can use a man like that, a man who's consistent, a man who's abiding in me, a man who um, is in my will, who, a man who is growing in righteousness through my spirit, and uh, people can't say anything about him anymore. If they killed him, it wouldn't be for any good reason. And I think God wants to see, see that, sees that in Paul, and he wants to see that in us. 
I don't believe that uh, that God can you that God can is limited um, in how much He can use you by the standard of Paul uh, or anyone else. I think God can use you as much as He chooses to use you and wants to and wants to use you. And so I think that we need to ask God, God, how can I? Give my life in a way where you can use it. How can I um, grow in you in a way that you can use me? How can I? What can I do? And how can I be more perfect? Yes, we'll never be perfect, but how can I um, strive for perfection to please you and therefore be used by you the way that you want me uh, want me to be used? And so, if you can maybe take just a minute or two just to look at that sheet, fill in any area, uh, fill in at least question one, three, and five if you haven't already. And uh, and if you've got and if you already have, look at question two, four, and six, and maybe write down what you know you could do to grow in Christ more, to abide in Christ more. What are you lacking? Um, what what you know? I already I already said how I was lacking and how I need to get before my knees before God. I don't know what it is for you.